Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Hello, hello. I'm so excited. Advent is just around the corner, kicking off this weekend on Sunday, the very first day of Advent, as we build up to Christmas. I did a podcast episode on Friday talking about preparation for Advent. We'll be talking about it more tomorrow here on the show. That last day before Thanksgiving, are you traveling? Are you off? Are you on the road? Are you looking forward to food, fearing the political conversation, or whatever it might be? You know, it it can be fun, right? Good food, fresh air. Hopefully you can get outside. Um, All of that we will be diving into uh, more tomorrow. The topic of Thanksgiving. You know, I think it's easy, you know, to just have this be that one holiday that's all about food. Or maybe you awkwardly go around everyone sharing what you're thankful for uh, during Thanksgiving. I always hate it when I've been in those situations having to share in front of everyone. Believe it or not, on the spot, uh, in front of especially friends or family, I can get quite shy at times. I'm having to share things such as that. But joining me in just a moment will be Dr. John Puchalski. Dr. John Puchalski is a OBGYN. He's the founder of Tepeyac OBGYN. He, in the first two years of his residency, actually performed abortions um, and had a massive conversion. You know, kind of lived this dichotomy of a life of performing abortions, but also ha- helping with women in crisis pregnancy at the same time. Now he's 100% pro-life and a passionate advocate for women and children and really helping women to choose life and see that that is the best choice, not just for the child, but for them as the woman. We're going to discuss the pressure on women to abort their children uh, while in utero, especially when they receive a medical diagnosis or a positive genetic test, meaning that there's something that came up on the genetic testing. Uh, We're also going to dive into this arbitrary choice by states, state to state, sometimes even states right next door to each other. If you just cross over over the state line having radically different medical standards and a definition for life when it comes to abortion and this inconsistency with regard to ethic. Also, I have a big announcement. I'm excited to share some news with some of the craziness and good things that have been going on in my life lately. We'll talk about uh, gratitude, humility, and depending on people through all of this transition for me. Uh, But I'm so excited for Dr. John Bruchalski to share with us now on Trending and join us. He's the author of the new book titled Two Patients. My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. And he shares many topics in his book, but one thing that you talk about, Dr. Bruchalski, in your book is 
specifically when a child receives an in utero medical diagnosis in that crisis uh, that women face in making a quote-unquote decision about potentially eliminating uh, the baby in those circumstances. I've worked in the crisis pregnancy centers. I worked in them for almost six years and I saw firsthand the anxiety uh, that would go on with women who feared something such as a genetic test because if they received a bad genetic test it was normative for them to consider an abortion or to be told before even taking the genetic test uh, by a physician that they could quote unquote discuss their options once the test results come back. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, especially from the perspective of a physician, OBGYN, and someone who does labor and delivery with women. Hey, Timory, it's great to be with you. And um, this uh, time before Advent is just incredibly providential for this conversation. So I'm grateful. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I spent two years of my life uh, convincing women that whenever there was anything unsure, anything um, unknown, we could solve it with medicine and science. That was my new God. And um, when it came down to genetic testing, um, back in the day, many years ago, the only way we could really count on this was by sticking a needle inside the, you know, inside the woman's abdomen into the uterine cavity and either drawing out fluid, which is called amniotic fluid, in order to identify what was the chromosomal, prop, you know, what was the chromosomal uh, uh, totality of the baby. You know, what type of chromosomes did it have? Was it healthy or was there Down syndrome? Was there trisomy 13 and 18? And then we also had, back in the day, um, a, another needle that would go into the placenta, believe it or not, and uh, would pull out cells from that organ that really keeps the baby alive inside mom. And yet, when we did that, there was always a significant chance of miscarriage. So over time, medicine began to look at blood tests and ultrasound studies. Well, today, we have something called the uh, non-invasive prenatal testing. NIPT. It came about in 2011 because the science just continues. And this test, we just draw blood from your arm. And many pregnant women um, get this done without being told what it is. Sometimes they're asked, but they're very much encouraged because we can now look at the genetics of their little one very, very early in the pregnancy, six, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks. Earlier abortions are easier, quote-unquote, to do. And this has been this search-and-destroy mission ever since the great geneticists began to identify these conditions, these diseases in our family, you know, in our human family, especially that with Down syndrome. Uh, mm -hmm. I grew up with a cousin uh, who had Down syndrome, and uh, he, he asked me during the process, uh, was he an endangered species? And at the time, I could not answer that because I was too conflicted. However, these tests are presented as foolproof. Uh, we often tell patients that um, their accuracy is, you know, spot on and that um, we are just um, going to relieve their mind from anxiety. We paint it in the po most positive of cases. 
And lo and behold, when you look at the data, and what we're talking about here is something called false positives. Yes. This test, basically, when we have a false positive, it says there's a high risk for the condition, but your baby doesn't have the condition, meaning the baby's actually healthy, but the test says that that there could be a very big problem. That positive Mm -hmm. predictive value for this test, the NIPT test, is only 75%. Now, what that means is, is that how worried are you? 75% of the time, it's going to be positive. But 25% of the time, one in four, your child's actually going to be healthy. And you are going to be- go begin this process of becoming afraid. Human so beings... just to clarify, I want to make yeah, sure I understand this. So you're saying... That if a woman goes and has this test, that when the test comes up positive, as saying that there's something wrong genetically with the baby, that only one in four of those times where a woman's told that something is genetically wrong with her child, there actually is something wrong, no, and the other the three out of four are sitting here thinking this entire rest of their pregnancy that there's a genetic abnormality with their child. So what happens is, is that it's just, it's just the opposite. It's 75% of the time the test is correctly positive, but it's 25% that the baby is totally normal. Now, remember, these tests are, um, how do we say this? These tests are uh, testing for risk. They're not definitive. In fact, this has become so commonplace that the FDA has not authorized, cleared, or approved these tests. They hit the market. We thought that they would be so helpful. We then put them out to our patients, and boy, patients really like this because they can identify a a very sick baby very early, and if they choose abortion, they can get that done uh, earlier in the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, is that these are screening tests. They were never meant to be diagnostic. They will mm-hmm. always tell you that if this is positive, you should do something definitive, like putting a needle next to your baby. And I can tell you that when we talk about it in our office, most moms do not want to put a needle next to their baby that has a half percent, one percent, two percent chance of miscarriage. Would you get on an airplane that crashed two out of a hundred times. Of course you wouldn't. Right, precisely. And precisely. I'll be darn if this has been used. I've testified before Congress on this in Down syndrome cases, and it's truly uh, search and destroy. It's mm-hmm. basically beginning the process of, remember, these are mostly wanted children, welcome children, and now we're in the position of putting barriers, wedges between right. mom and her unborn. Uh, it's a fetus. You know, this child is going to suffer, right? Yeah. And to just give some examples for people to see how serious this is, uh, did you know that 9 out of 10 babies are diagnosed with Down syndrome and are aborted in the United States? 
that's very close to approaching a 100% quote-unquote success rate at killing babies with Down syndrome. Why do I say success rate? Because places like Iceland boast that they achieve aborting nearly 100% of all babies with a in utero genetic test after having a genetic test predicting Down syndrome. In, in Denmark, in fact, in 2016, there were 137 babies who were diagnosed with Down syndrome in Denmark from that genetic test. And of those 137 babies, 133, almost 100%, only four babies were left and allowed to be born. And it is absolutely devastating to hear because as we know, like you're saying, at least three out of four of all of those diagnoses are inaccurate and wrong. And so women are literally bearing the wound of an abortion, the post-abortion syndrome, the heartbreak, the decision-making, all of it in killing their baby and the death of their child when those tests aren't even accurate. And it's absolutely atrocious, Dr. Bruchowski. And it just makes me think of how pro abortion we've become as a society. Um, you know, I saw, I remember when my sister was having her first baby a couple of years ago and I had talked to her and warned her, you know, about, you know, being in, um, especially cause you know, they're a military family and, um, they're, you know, they're at the military hospital and, you know, we talked about, you know, the secular versus pro-life approach to doctoring and being aware of that. And when it came for the genetic testing, um, the, the one of the physicians there said, oh, well, you probably don't want the genetic testing. And she said, oh, well, why wouldn't I want the genetic testing? She said, well, usually it's just people who don't want to keep their babies who have the genetic testing. And I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that that was a normal thing to say, but it was clear that this physician was pro-life and so was leaning against giving any sort of genetic test for that reason, uh, which I thought was very interesting. No, it's, it's actually, you know, we're trying to do our best to really encourage health in people, which health means caring for both mom and baby. We always hate disease, but we always love our two patients. And when you start getting rid of diseases by getting rid of one of those two patients, yes, we're eliminating Down syndrome by killing the baby with Down syndrome. That is bad for medicine. It's bad for moms. It's bad for families. It's bad for cultures. Because, you know, it's also bad for salvation in the sense of Matthew 25, what you did to the least, you've done unto me. And this young, you know, these children that are so sick that uh, we can uh, perinatal hospice them rather than abort them and maximize the time with your sick child, I'm telling you, you're spot on with this. I usually would tell people, do you really want to end the life of your baby two out of 100 times, one out of 50? just because you're afraid of a test, meaning this test is not 100% accurate. Back when I was a resident, when I had my own, you know, come to Jesus moment, so to speak, I remember I did a test, a genetic test on a young couple, and it was positive because the risk went from 1 in 30,000 to 1 in 15,000. 1 in 15,000 is pretty rare, but the woman, the young woman, was so afraid, Timory, so afraid, she chose the abortion. The boyfriend was like, no, no, one in 15,000, that's nothing. We can do this. We'll get through this. It's really fine. No, I aborted the child because the mother wanted it. That's abortion on demand. The baby was 
perfectly okay. Mm. And I have to tell you, it leaves a scar on us because we become vending machines for these patients because of patient autonomy. They ask, you provide, or else you get punished. And uh, in this area of um, sick children, especially genetic issues that are very severe, we have found that perinatal hospice, where you use the womb as a hospice, and you really maximize the time for mom and her family to come to grips, because one time heals wounds there, Timory, and yet we are rushing people every day in this country to abort these children out of fear, fear of suffering, fear of pain, fear of the unknown, fear of not being able to handle what we're given. It's really a mess. And I think that, uh, you know, we really need to be thinking about uh, these non-invasive prenatal testings um, long and hard before we accept even what the FDA says, it doesn't do what the doctors are telling you that it does. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, Dr. Bruchowski is joining us now. He's an OBGYN, a pro-life OBGYN, however, who spent two years of his residency performing abortions, uh, has repented from his past, has written an excellent book uh, chronicling his own story and really pointing to the sound medical data and the truth uh, in his book, Two Patients, My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. Dr. Bruchowski, so many things that you just said stood out to me. First of all, uh, perspectives that we don't discuss, the fact that um, doctors are performing these abortions on babies who have a potential genetic risk risk and the abortion is being chosen, as you said, on demand by the parents or the mother individually. And here a doctor knows as he sees this baby, totally healthy babies at times that are being aborted, that weighs on a physician, on a on an abortionist heart and mind. And that's what's so sad is we see people who are becoming so desensitized who are pro-abortion because they know, yet they have to convince themselves otherwise. Isn't this what we do when we sin? We justify the sin when we repeat it. Uh, we hide, you know, the details of it, or we blasely talk about the details to make it seem as if it's not that big of a deal. It, it doesn't hurt me. It doesn't bother me. Uh, so I really appreciate you brought up the physician and, you know, the rest of the medical team's perspective on this because I think it's important. One objection that I think we might hear, because you just mentioned how important it is with that when there is a um, fetal diagnosis in utero or genetic test result that comes up with a potential genetic risk. I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts because a lot of people's complaints about what you just said is you know, rather than rushing to the abortion, which is what we do in this culture, give it time. Give time for the mom you know, to calm down after finding out. Give time maybe even for the baby to heal because, I mean, babies in the earliest stages of life are phenomenal. They have so much development that occurs, and yeah. often by just giving yeah. time, things that are going on in utero heal. So what would be your response, and I'd like to hear your thoughts, Dr. Bruchowski, on the arguments that people have of how, well, you're just forcing the woman to continue to carry the baby in those stages. States uh, that have uh, decreased access to abortion limits on abortion are just dar damaging women because of decreased access, and that that's bad for them medically. So, the the issue really becomes that these children, Timory, are welcomed and wanted. They are um, these are children that. You know, the mom and, and dad are thinking the best of their child. 
And in the middle of the process, the provider, the doctor says, uh, oh, wait a second, there's, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, as doctors and as caregivers, as midwives, as providers, we are literally listening, looking, studying through your skin, through your fat, through your muscle, through your innards, <laughs> through your gizzard, through your, amniot- through your uterine wall, through the placenta, through the amniotic fluid into the baby. We are very good at what we do, but we're not infallible. Remember, this whole idea of the wages of sin are death from Scripture, you, you, you set this time up about sin in a very wonderful, clear, clear way. Well, one of the ways that we say to them is, you know, I'm looking at something that can go either way at this point. We need some more time. And so we do not rush to judgment. We want you to maximize your time because, number one, your baby is not suffering right now. You may be suffering because you wanted to hear the best news, but you heard something really frightening. And I know that if your child was found at one month of age and you found it it had cancer, you would be seeking out St. Jude's Hospital. You would be seeking out the best places you could to care for your child. I try to reconnect mom with her baby despite the suffering. And the suffering, a mother never gives up on her sick child. That's why euthanizing babies that Canada just looked at way too closely um, is horrific to think about mothers. So what we do is we say we have to gather more information, better ultrasounds, better testing, we need to, and then we need to send them to the high-risk doctors, and even those high-risk doctors will begin to start talking about, oh, uh, we need to prevent the suffering. And so it's just a matter of making a relationship with your patient in such a way that she maximizes the time with her sick child, just like she would do if it was one month old, one year old, ten years old. Because it's all part of the same mother-child situation. Just because the baby is in another um, address inside of her doesn't mean that that child is not separate from her. It might be a separate Mm -hmm. sex. It might have its own disease. It's half dad, half mom. And so by connecting her experientially with her child, it really helps move her along to then maximize the time with the illness. And when it comes time to deliver, she and her family are prepared to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And that is the biggest, because our experience is that if when you terminate and abort the pregnancy immediately, you recognize your own limitations, you justify it, or you try to, but deep down inside, that is a subgroup of women that have a very high incidents of mental health issues and uh, incredible regret. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a matter of forming a relationship with your patients and helping them. I'm going to accompany you through this. We are going to walk with you through this. Mm -hmm. And then you bring up the perinatal hospice 
when that time does come and you realize that no matter what you do for this child, the child's going to die shortly after you clamp the umbilical cord. And you're able to mourn, you're able to handle the fear, you're able to walk with, accompany somebody, compassion, to suffer with someone who's facing a very difficult situation. But abortion is never the answer to curtail that. You have to walk through it rather than kill the person with the disease. And that's pro-woman. That's pro-mom. Of course. Because she's a mom no matter what. That's pro-life and that's pro-baby. Again, bonding with the mom, allowing for that time of maximum time, just like we would do if we had a three-year-old, a five-year-old. And it makes me think of my own story with these last two pregnancies. I ran dangerously low on progesterone. And in the first half of both of my pregnancies now, that meant that I was at high risk for miscarriage. And we have fought for our baby's life this entire time. And having that level of respect and pro-life perspective of whether this baby is inside my womb right now or outside. We don't treat the baby any differently. And that's so important for us to understand from a pro-life perspective, not just for us who are pro-life, but for those who are having to navigate these situations, as you mentioned, for them to come out with the best psychological outcome as well. That's Dr. John Prochalski. Check out his book, Two Patients, My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. Post the link on Twitter and social media. I'll be right back with Dr. John Puchalski, pro-life OBGYN, former abortionist here on Trending. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Okay, Advent is just around the corner, and if I haven't let you know yet, I am giving some Advent recommendations, and one of those recommendations on my list, coming up, stay tuned, is The Jesse Train Advent Devotion. It's a book for the whole family, from littles to adults. You don't have to have littles to use it, but it's really fun because if you want, you can incorporate ornaments for your Christmas tree. That's right. And I love beautiful ornaments, so it's an opportunity and a reason and an excuse to maybe buy some ornaments or make your own. There are plenty that you can actually print online if you just want to do some paper ornaments. But there are symbols of salvation history that go into the Jesse tree. I'll talk about it more uh, tomorrow here on Trending. But the giveaway is officially kicked off. You can find it on my Instagram at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. So be sure to go and check that out. The Jesse Tree Advent Devotion published by Sophia Press. And it's written by Eric and Suzanne Sam. They did an incredible job on this Advent devotional. This is actually one of the things I will be using this Advent, and I will be using some of my current Christmas ornaments and picking up some new ones uh, to incorporate this fun little tradition in my family. I hope you will too. You can pick it up from Sophia Press. We'll post a link on social media uh, as well as on Instagram if you want to join the giveaway to get to win that. I will be picking a winner on what's today. I'll pick the winner on Thanksgiving. Okay, joining me now is Dr. John Puchowski. He is a pro-life OBGYN. For the first two years of his medical career, he performed abortions during his residency. He wrote the book. I highly recommend it. It just came out a couple months ago called Two Patients. 
my conversion from abortion to life-affirming medicine. Dr. Bruchowski, we were talking about um, prenatal diagnosis in utero uh, and genetic testing and the false positives that of those tests that come back of those people who have genetic tests um, and they say that there's something wrong genetically, um, that we see an 85% rate where these tests weren't true and the baby's perfectly healthy. But there are cases where we know children are born with a genetic defects and whatnot, and yet we still, as pro-life people, believe in welcoming and loving and bringing these children into the world, that these children have value no matter what. Sarah from California is on the line. She actually wants to share her own story with us. Sarah, welcome to Trending. I would love to hear about your baby girl. Hi, thank you so much. Um, my daughter, Maggie, um, so we had the NIPT test done um, when I was 10 weeks pregnant, um, and it did come back positive for trisomy 18, Edwards syndrome, which is not something that you know about until you are faced with it. It is just absolutely devastating, especially when you race online when you get this diagnosis and you look at what it is and it's terrifying. It's horrible. 90% of these babies don't make it to their first birthday. Um, and it's just all horrible. Um, my OB who she's fantastic, but you know, that night on the phone, she, you know, poor thing. I mean, when your OB is calling you at nine thirty at night, you know, it's not going to be good. And she was calling me to let me know um, about my daughter. Um, anyway, she offered an abortion, um, and I knew right away that I was not going to do that. I knew instantly. Mary didn't leave her son. I could not leave my daughter. And I knew that right away. So, um, so um, we went through m- many, many, many um, ultrasounds. I went to perinatal ultrasounds. Every time I saw a new doctor, it was they were telling me that I needed to abort this baby. I have a at the time he was three. My son, you're not going to be able to give your time to your son. You're going to have to spend it all taking care of your daughter. You don't know what she's going to have when she's born. And you know, Maggie was presenting some things, but nothing really um, atrocious, I guess. Um, and they were kind of confused. They would say, "Well, maybe she doesn't have it, but there is something going on, and we don't know." Um, so my daughter, um, she made it to 37 weeks. We decided to induce her. Um, and my OB was, again, she was really great. She just said, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of go with the flow. Um, but, but all the other doctors, every time it was, you know, I was really pushed. And so it was really hard to just enjoy any of this pregnancy, you know, um, because the outlook is so horrific horrific and i want to give hope to those moms out there who are going through this and those dads out there who are going through this because i regret that i didn't enjoy my pregnancy because you're just flooded with all of this terribleness the safest place for your baby is in your womb i didn't have the amniocentesis i didn't do it if my if her odds are terrible why risk it anymore right um, you know, and so I didn't, I didn't do that. Um, my baby was born at 37 weeks. Um, she definitely had issues. She was immediately taken to the NICU. Um, we were at a level three NICU. She had to be transferred to a level four NICU, like within three days. 
Um, and when she was transferred there, they didn't know for sure still. They hadn't done a genetic test. And I have to say that there's also an issue, not just with the, like, with abortion in this, but these babies require fair care. When I got to the NICU, they told me they were going to do a genetic test for my daughter, and that it, if it came back trisomy 18, our conversation was going to be different. What do you mean? Why would the conversation be different? And I, it is like this for so many of us parents. I had to I can't even tell you. Yeah, take a deep breath. We're with you. We're listening to your story, Sarah. Oh my gosh, you're such just, I'll give you a second because I want to continue to hear. You are addressing every mom's fear, but you are matching it with a faithful mom's courage. I just want to tell you thank you and a faithful mom's love. And I'm just going to repeat that line you just said a moment ago. She said, you said Mary didn't leave her son, I couldn't leave my daughter. So if you're, if you're doing okay, because your story is so powerful, I want you to be able to share it and share it so clearly and eloquently as you are. What happened when they started to tell you that you they would discuss options if the genetic test came back after the baby was born? So I, um, there's, a, there's a group called SOFT, Speaking Out for Trisomy, and we had kind of become aware of it in our, in our search for anything dealing with my daughter's potential diagnosis. And within that, there were parents saying that um, a lot of times these kiddos are left uh, untreated once they are born because their outlook is so dire. And so I, I, so when I approached this, other the the NICU that we were transferred to I told every single doctor we had a palliative care team and I you know I don't I I know why they were put there right um because palliative care is kind of um where you're not um effectively like trying to address what's going on with your child you're just going to kind of let them whatever's going to happen is going to happen and you're just going to let that happen and so we had a palliative care team, wasn't super crazy about that, but we had it. Um, and, but every time I went and spoke with this team of doctors that was, was in this NICU, I would say, okay, but I am here for my daughter. We want her. We want her. We want her. Mm-hmm. We want her with us. And if that is able to be done, I want you to, to take care of what is wrong with her not with her trisomy 18. It's different, right? My daughter had a large VSD in her heart. She had um, a PDA, which eventually closed on its own, and she was having lung situations. She went from, she was on everything. She was on, she was intubated. She extubated herself. Uh, Crazy child that she is. Um, (laughs) And all of this. She's been through all of it. She's all of it. Um, And she needed to have a heart repair, and there are five, six now, five hospitals in the country that these parents can go to, that they can trust that these doctors will actually perform yep. the closing of a VSD on their child, which is something that is done quite regularly. Mm-hmm. 
for any other child not dealing with trisomy. Now, you have to do it a lot sooner. So my daughter had open heart surgery at three months old. So she was the first child at her hospital to ever get that surgery because I told them I was going to go elsewhere. And it hit me like I was crazy. What do you mean? You're going to go somewhere else? Now, I'm in California, and I was talking to Boston. I was talking to Omaha. I was talking to all of these different places because I couldn't get that here. For a simple VSD, I say simple. I'm not a heart surgeon. But according to heart surgeons, a VSD repair is, you know. You're spot know. on, Mom. I'm You're not a heart surgeon. On. I'm not a heart surgeon. But the, the amount of what the work that we had to do in order to get her that care. And I don't know what happened because I know that the day before the meeting with, with the, the cardiologist, she was not going to have that surgery. But then we went into that meeting, and they said they were going to do it. And I couldn't believe it. Like, I couldn't believe it. Not only that was on Thursday. Not only were they going to do it, they're going to do it on Saturday. My daughter, as soon as they did that, my daughter changed course. My daughter was dying. My daughter was back on a ventilator, like, the, the Sunday before this meeting. I thought, there's no way they're going to fix her. There's no way they're going to do this. She's back on a ventilator. She's dying. All of these things that they say is going to happen are starting to happen to her now. She's starting to have the apneic episodes, which she hadn't been having. She's starting to do all these things, and these things are the things that take these kids, and it takes these kids because they're not, they're not doing what needs to be done quickly for them. And you fought for her life. You fought for her life. I am so grateful for your story, Sarah. If you could just speak briefly, you know, I know your daughter's 18 months old. Praise God. You have her with you. Um, as a mom and for those who are afraid, you know, fear something being wrong with their children, maybe you're facing similar situations. You know, can you speak to the value of your daughter's life? Do you regret it at all? I mean, obviously not based on your powerful testimony. Absolutely not. We were in the NICU for four and a half months. She's been, you know, a cold will get her in the PICU. You know, it's very, she, she's on oxygen. She wears a BiPAP at night. She has a feeding tube. But I have learned, I didn't know any of this. I have learned it all. Okay. I have learned it all. I know how to take care of my daughter. I know my daughter. And, yeah. you know, she is the absolute joy of our life. My son loves her so much. She Thank smiles you. at us. She smiles. She's just starting to get her belly laugh. She's just starting to, to roll over. She's delayed. She's, you know, she's not going to be, you know, she's not, she's, I'm going to be taking care of her for the rest of her life. And I am so happy to do it. And I am so blessed to do it. And she is just the absolute, she's got these beautiful big blue eyes. She smiles at me every morning when I take her little mask off. She's just the happiest little baby. She's teething. She's still happy. Like, she's just fantastic. And everybody loves her. Maggie is just beautiful. And I just regret so much that I did not enjoy my pregnancy because, because it was just so full of such dread that I feel like I was kind of robbed of that. So just trust. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus. They, even if their lives are short, even if their lives are short, and it very well could be, 
Mm-hmm. It's still so worth it. Give your child the opportunity to breathe that breath because all you ask for at that moment is a breath, right? Mm-hmm. When she was being born, just please let her have a breath. Let me be able to look into her eyes. One let me breath. be able to rub her head. Let me be able to give her a bath. And like we've had all of these little things now. She's 18 months. I mean, it's amazing. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your story. What a powerful testimony to you, Mom, as you, Sarah, as a mom, to your daughter's life, Maggie, your whole family, your son, your husband, being so confident in your choice of life. And don't you say that your baby girl is delayed. I'm so sick of people saying saying and making comments on size and delay. Your daughter's an individual right where she's at, and she's being cared for and thriving exactly how she should. So praise God. Thank you for your testimony and your witness, Sarah. And I know you've got the heartstrings of so many moms across the country right now. We are going to be praying for you, and I'm imploring everyone who's listening right now, we just pray for Sarah for her courage, for the power of her story, and for Maggie and whatever healing God has in store for baby Maggie and whatever journey he has and how she's going to bless uh, her mom, her brother, and all those yeah, who know her. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Gruchowski, I'd love to hear your thoughts just on the medical handling of the situations and what women are facing, what moms are facing today. Sarah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I just can't um, tell you what Sarah and uh, Maggie's story has meant for me. Um, this witness of a mother with her child uh, resonates through the NICU. Just remember that, Sarah. Um, there were many women, there were many nurses and uh, nurse practitioners who cared for your daughter there, along with the doctors. But I just want you to know that your presence alongside your daughter rippled like a tsunami through that hospital from that NICU, that neonatal intensive care unit. And the love, that's the answer to where we are today in this abortion issue. Love is going to win in the end. It's not going to be politics. We have a real issue here because now every 50 states, every single voter everywhere has to defend or promote abortion or to then silence it. And you see heartbeat laws and then pain-capable laws, and everybody's afraid of, you know, some of the losses we've suffered recently, trying to enjoy the wins. But it's not about politics. It's about love, and it's about the love of mothers. And I pray, Timory, just like you're preparing your audience for Advent, can you imagine if we had this back in the day, 2,000 you know, years ago in Nazareth or in Jerusalem or Bethlehem? And here we are in a crisis pregnancy and then kind of worrying, not worrying. You know, Our Lady had peace. And I was just going to tell Sarah that You offered to the Lord, Sarah, your lack of peace during those nine months. Don't negate it. Lean into it. Lean, give it to the Lord. And I promise you, your obedience to what the Word of God had is far greater than great lectures, great papers, great topics, great wins in politics. God bless you, Sarah. 
That's Dr. John Bruchowski here on Trending with Tim Ray. Dr. Bruchowski, we've run out of time. We have so much to talk about. We can't wait to have you back on Trending. Check out his book, Two Patients, My Conversion from Abortion to Life-Affirming Medicine. We're also posting his website on social media. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. It's so good to be back with you, and can I just tell you, it's good to be back with you from sunny California. So life has been a little crazy. I know I've shared little bits and pieces about struggling with preterm labor and a lot of change going on. Well, I was struggling with preterm labor. I thought we were going to have this baby a few weeks ago. Um, And at the same time, we were in the process of selling our house, looking for a new house. Long story short, when we've known that we wanted to move back to California from the Midwest pretty much since day one, but following God's plan for us and journey and career for my husband and work and where, again, God was calling us. We found ourselves in the Midwest for almost two years. You may remember my heartbreak and devastation. My baby girl was about two weeks old. My husband received a job offer that uh, for our family, just we were at a point where we couldn't pass up. Um, It was really good for the longevity of his work. So we packed up and we moved everything to the Midwest. And this California girl has been just hungry and craving California sunshine, family, good food, real produce, our friends who are out here. Um, So God really answered some prayers. It took a while to um, get there and took us the last second. But when we found out we were expecting our second baby, uh, we had just moved. Or we had just bought a house. You know, we landed there in the Midwest, waited, found a home. And here we are expecting another baby and even more so, oh goodness, we have to be back. We want our babies to be near grandparents. And what's been a dream, a desire, and a prayer, boy, about 45 days ago, my husband received a job offer somewhat out of the blue. Um, we had been praying to St. Joseph and been hoping to come back before the birth of our baby girl. And, you know, as the months of job hunting and looking and, you know, can we make this happen? Lo and behold, a Joseph, a man named Joseph, offered my husband a job after we had been praying to St. Joseph and just entrusting our desires and our petitions and praying for provisions to make everything happen for as crazy expensive as California is. And I can't even tell you, the whole thing has been absolutely God's timing and providence and generosity. About 45 days ago, my husband received a job offer in California, put our house on the market within a couple of days, sold it in a slowing uh, real estate market with rising interest rates. We sold it within a week. A 30-day escrow turned into selling our house and closing in two weeks and freeing up what we needed. And we found, I arrived in California a couple of weeks ago and going, oh my goodness, I have nowhere to live. Of course I have places to live. We're staying with, you know, my mom and family were taking care of me. We're staying with an aunt as we're, you know, making our way toward um, the new job and everything. And it has been absolutely overwhelming to see uh, just God's utter and complete provisions. I really think that he waited till the very last minute to move us right before I have this baby as a reminder of how he works, that he is in charge. And it's not what we can do to find a job, what we can do to save money to buy a house or sell our own home, but that he 
truly weaves the thread of our lives and it is he who calls us or allows us to suffer at times and it is he who uh, blesses us in abundance and through all of this here we are we're packing up our house in two weeks for me to leave uh, the midwest and then we're going to find a new house and i'm literally going into labor literally going into labor i had to call off the show uh, a few weeks ago because uh, contractions were just back to back. Um, I wasn't able to really pack up my house. We had that family who flew into town to help us pack up our house. And then my husband was just an absolute champ and just pillar of our family, packing up the rest of our house while dealing with major work events. And uh, we found a house. And even in this crazy real estate market where, you know, I've had so many friends and family, my mom's a real estate agent over and over again, you know, the investors are coming in and picking up these houses so quickly. And, you know, average families who just want a home can't get them because they're being outbid by tens of thousands of dollars. Well, one generous woman who knew that I needed a house in time for my new baby um, was willing to not only sell her house quickly, to choose us above another uh, set of people who had offered on her own, but even to do a 21-day escrow. So we're getting ready to move into our new house. We are just so excited to be back in California. And I've learned a lot of lessons through all of this. I think God is giving me a good, um, allowing me a good ounce of humility and dependence right and dependence right now. I'm one who I like to do things myself and not really ask for help and I'm active and used to moving and here I've been for about three weeks on a modified um, modified activity level. Praise God, not on bed rest. I think God um, gave me some real compassion there because he knew I couldn't handle that. I'm already kind of twiddling my thumbs, not being as active as I usually am, but then also, you know, trying to move and having to ask for help or, you know, wait for, you know, what help is sent my way and to be grateful for allowing other people to do things that you just want to do yourself. And it's really reminded me of how we can be so, I can be, but just as a culture, we can be so prideful and so focused, especially in the feminist movement on quote-unquote independence and yet the truth of the matter is is that as human beings god god himself is a communion of persons father son and holy spirit and the only way we come into this world is in a family and you think about the fact that we are social creatures and it's a reminder that for how hard the culture pushes us to isolation and independence and self-sufficiency not that any of those things are a bad thing but to the secular perspective to the furthest reaches of those ideas of independence and self-sufficiency and you know kind of just having this like even that like girl power mindset that it's detrimental to us and i remember some years ago uh, i was studying and really pondering the idea of gratitude and i don't remember where i read it but it said that a truly generous person is good at receiving. And I, I don't think I'm good at being generous, like in terms of like giving things away toward others. Just ask my siblings, they know um, I was not generous growing up. It's something I work on. Um, but how generosity also is in how you accept things and how you allow other people to be generous toward you and that you can be generous back by allowing them to enter into your lives and step in. And it's been a huge lesson for me in humility and dependence and 
God's generosity. And at the end of the day, with, again, everything that from moving back or new baby and everything, that God is so generous to us. And if you have a dream, if you have a need, if you have a desire, entrust those needs to God. And however long it may take, months, two years, five years, God answers prayers, but he transforms hearts in that waiting process and has a better plan. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Wednesday, it's the day before Thanksgiving. Let's talk about facing family feuds at Thanksgiving time, disagreements, talking points, the non-talking points, whether it be pets or politics or religion. We'll also talk about gratitude and getting ready for Advent that kicks off this Sunday. I'm so excited. It's my favorite liturgical season. So join me Wednesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.